This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's episode, we've got an amazing guest. He's a young gun, man. Young gun in the tribe. His name is Ryan Stenberg. He's an investor. He's an entrepreneur. He's doing incredible things. I'll say in the real estate space, I guess, or at least affiliated with real estate. Uh, and he's a GoBundance brother. And uh, yeah, amazing story. You're going to be educated on some incredible stuff today. So Ryan, welcome, brother. Thanks. Thanks, Jamie, for having me. Really excited to be here. Of course. So let's let's get your first off. How how old are you? This always makes me feel in, inadequate and insignificant. But how uh, old are you? I'm 25 right now. 25. <laughs> let's just let that sit for many of us for a moment. But let, why don't you give us your backstory? Let's start there. I can't believe you've done what you've done at 25. It blows my mind. I wish I had your mindset. But go back and tell us a little bit about you know where you're from, your beginnings, up through what you're doing today, if you don't mind. Yeah, totally. So I grew up in um grew up in Silicon Valley. Uh, wanted to be, you know, not an entrepreneur growing up. Ended up studying, uh, studying at UCLA, computer science, and uh, going into kind of getting a first taste in the startup world when I was at school there. Taking a company through the UCLA accelerator program uh, during my last year, and then landing eventually at Google as a um, software engineer, and then turned into a program manager. Uh, after that, uh, I worked at Google for about two and a half years, and kind of the last maybe year to year and a half started realizing this uh, something was off and what felt off was kind of the incentive structure of you know this nine to five work work job uh, mm-hmm. where you're, you're incentivized to kind of do as little or as poor work as you can do <laughs> and get away with it and uh, I'm not saying that's what you should do but I'm saying that that's what you're economically incentivized to do and I just don't really like uh, I don't really like that incentive structure as someone who kind of tends towards the entrepreneurial side um, and so I kept looking for where can I put myself where I can trade my efforts, my time, my you know effectiveness for results for myself, as opposed to kind of the inverse here. And then eventually landed um, landed on real estate as being at least one of those vehicles. So looked towards real estate as a high confidence way to build horizontal income and kind of escape the need to work a nine to five, maybe salaried job um, in the more traditional sense. So eventually, I, I think, started working on real estate about a year into my job at Google. And then January last year, which was the two and a half year mark, uh, left and went full time onto real estate. Since then, have been uh, working mostly as an investor syndicating, uh, originally in multifamily, multifamily space, and then transitioning over towards commercial assets. So that's retail, industrial, office buildings. Um, we've done hotels, uh, we've done mobile home parks, and all of those kind of assets. Okay. All right. Let's take a, I want to go back a step here, back to um, incentivize to do little or poor work. What do you mean by that? Explain, explain what you saw. I, I, that's interesting to me. I agree with it. And I think that's a brilliant way of putting it, but I'm curious to hear you kind of articulate what you saw and why that is. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I actually have been seeing this, not just myself, but with a lot of others uh, in the pandemic, I think kind of put the foot on the gas pedal for a lot of people to make this realization and make a jump that they were already kind of inclined to make. And I think what a lot of people are realizing and their subconscious realizes it before their conscious mind might realize it is that at work, you show up every day and you're going to get paid the same amount every day, no matter what, you know, and 
if you do amazing, you might get a raise or a promotion uh, that will result in more responsibility. And so there's two kind of, uh, my mind breaks into these two models that are at play. One of them is that the more I work, I will get, you know, my reward is a promotion, which comes with more responsibility and more pay. And my pay will increase linearly, but my responsibility will increase in the sense that it will go from a 40 hour work week to a 50 hour work week to a 60 hour work week. And every 10 hour work, you know, every 10 hours that I lose on my free time, is an incremental or not an incremental, sorry, an exponential loss on my free time. And so what I was realizing is this reward system is you get, you know, this uh, linear increase in pay and you get an exponential decrease in your free time as you get rewarded more and more. And I kept seeing it as people would move up to managers, to directors, to VPs at these companies. They were working, you know, they go from 40 hours to 50 to 60 to 70 to 80 and all of a sudden all their free time is 100% of it. And so I just realized that's not an incentive structure I was interested in. And so instead, the incentive, you know, the other option is to work as little, you know, or produce as little and work as little as you can and get away with it without getting fired. And honestly, that's just not someone that I am. Uh, I can't do that long term. <laughs> um, and so, um, I like to pour everything I can into the work that I do. And so I started realizing this is just not the place for that where you can pour everything, every ounce of your, you know, your energy in and be rewarded for it on the other side. And so um, I started looking for other opportunities where, where can I do that? Where can I put, you know, my heart and soul into, into my work and then, you know, be rewarded uh, appropriately for it. Amazing. Wow. No, I love the way you put that. I'm curious, like, you know, what do you think that, because you, you think about like in the entrepreneurial world, the higher you go, if you will, like the more you build your team and the more you build your organization or whatever, like there's less time involved, right? You build systems so that folks at the line level are doing more work. What do you think is the, creates the inverse? Is it just the need of a corporation to grind you for the pay that they're making, that they're giving you like, or is it just a, a mindset thing on the part of the employee? Like, is it the institution or is it the people that feel they need to do that? Do you think from what you observed work more as they go up the chain? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I think a lot of people don't know what they're out there chasing. Um, and oh, if wow. you don't choose what you want, I think society will choose for you. So if you don't sit there and say, what do I want out of life? And you ask why, 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 and get to the bottom of it. And you realize like, you know, maybe for me, it's happiness or it's, you know, it's gratitude or for, or it's um, a certain amount of freedom. Um, if you don't choose that, society will generally choose for you. And society will choose for you a lot of the time is, is often status um, or, uh, you know, status or money or something that um, can result in, you know, a life that's not that desirable or not that enjoyable, I should say. So I think a lot of people are out there, you know, chasing status because they've grown up their entire life thinking, you know, I want to work at the biggest company. I want the high, you know, the biggest title. I want the, you know, you know, director or VP or whatever stamp next to my name. Um, why do you want that? You know, <laughs> I think most people couldn't answer that question because um, they haven't thought about it consciously, but they've been primed over decades uh, of a culture to, uh, to chase that kind of thing. And, um, and if you don't ask, you know, take the time to do the work and sit down with yourself and figure out what you want. I think that's the default. And, um, your subconscious will kind of default to whatever culture and society, you know, primes it to do. Where were you? Where were you when I was 25? Because you just described me. That's exactly what happened. Like I chased the title. My story. People that listen to the podcast hear it all the time. My story is I hit a. a I got the job I wanted, and I was like, "Oh God, I, I this isn't who I want to be." Right? But it took me to 40 to figure that out. You're figuring it out at 25, which is unbelievable. But when you say that, I'm curious for you. You go, "Why? Why? Why? What is it for you? What is the why? The base why? The root cause? The root of what you want in life? Have you defined that for yourself?" Yeah, yeah. I think. Um... If you ask, when you start asking why, it's a really dangerous game. You can go down this <laughs> rabbit hole. 
Um, and what ends up happening is you ask why enough times you get to the bottom of it and you realize at the end, there is no objective truth as to what you should chase. And, you know, there's no best answer or optimal path. You're left with a subjective choice of what's going to matter to you. And you just kind of got to choose. And, um, for myself, uh, you know, some people will choose very different things. Uh, for myself, what it ends up being is I think the way people feel is very important, including myself. And what I'm chasing is the best feeling that I can get throughout life and hoping to increase the way that other people feel, uh, you know, in their, in their normal life. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you went out there and you interview, you know, if you ask like Elon Musk, what, what he's chasing a lot of, or what he's trying to do for humanity, a lot of it is about protecting, you know, extinction. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different why, right? It's not necessarily about how people feel along the way, along that journey. Um, but I think for me, that's, that's extremely important because I think there's an increasing amount of lostness out there <laughs> um as it just becomes you know honestly a lot of base needs get met and we're very uh we have a lot of free time we have a lot of uh ambigu- ambiguity in our world to go and choose uh choose things which is great but uh hard to navigate no that's interesting my wife has made this point about um she grew up in the dominican right developing nation and um i you know this isn't statistically valid but she's like yeah people aren't depressed there and it's not because, you know, oh, it's just a happier place. But to your point, basic needs aren't covered, right? They don't know right. when they're going to eat. Many don't know when they're going to eat next. They don't know where, you know, how they're going to take care of their children. So they don't have the ability to think about, you know, the choices that are out there. They don't have those choices. They have to do, right? It doesn't make it better or worse, but it's just what you just described. Like we've got, we, we, our base needs are covered. Even if you're, yeah. even if you're, you know, poor in this country, your base needs are covered and then some, right? Yeah. Um, that's what there's a lot of wisdom in that. I mean, that's incredible. Go ahead. What were you gonna say? Yeah, it's really easy to find purpose. Or I don't know if it's easy, but it, it's it comes purpose comes to you when you need to provide for your family, right? And when you need to be able to satisfy base needs. And so for all of you know, human history, purpose has come from help others around me survive and myself. <laughs> and that's not longer like, you know, that's kind of a given at this point, like uh, survival. And, and now you now what do you do left with your time? And so um it's a lot harder to derive purpose, I think, than it used to be. And so that's a, yeah, a little bit more missing and increasingly missing in society. Love that. That's, that's, that's a tweetable line, by the way. Um, I want to do one more, one more, uh, uh, from your past. You mentioned that you took a company through the UCLA. Did you call it the incubator? Am I right on that? Accelerator. Yeah. Accelerator. Excuse me. What, <laughs> that's a better word. What, um, can you tell, what was that? If you don't mind, I'm just kind of curious what that was. What was that business that you brought through? Sure, yeah. Um, it was an ed tech company. It's called Tutorfly. It's still out there. Uh, my business partner and co-founder at the time, he is still working on that uh, project. But basically what happened is um, my uh, junior year in college, a friend of mine and I had a very similar idea out there that um, a lot of education, um, we both came from Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. And a lot of uh, kind of the standard education model is too slow and too kind of one size fits all. And then the alternative is, you know, $100 an hour um, tutoring and, and things like that. And so there's kind of this gap in, in the middle where people can't quite afford, you know, $100 an hour um, for uh, to help their, their kid. But they also, you know, want something better than what traditional education or public schools are able to offer them. And so we ended up like going and looking for an option that could uh, fit that niche and found it through peer-to-peer tutoring, basically. So we found is that there was a huge value to having someone who just took the exact same class that you're taking, maybe with the same teacher um, and did very well in that class, then go back and teach others. And that was valuable for two reasons. And it helped, you know, one of the best ways to learn is to teach. And so it helped both sides of the 
kind of the coin there. And you had a lot of students that were looking for ways to volunteer, looking for ways to help other, you know, um, uh, whether it was collect hours for their college apps or things like that. So there's kind of a, a missed value proposition there. So we ended up going to schools and recruiting schools uh, through programs like National Honor Society and stuff like that. And we'd bring the entirety of the National Honor Society program, which were all you know, usually uh, school or students that were doing very well in school, onto the tutoring platform and have them connect with other students that were in their um, uh, in their classes, you know, maybe a year earlier or you know a year behind them. So um, that was the, that was the uh, program. There was some tech involved, and I was helping with a lot of the engineering um, and trying to create this marketplace, basically. And so it was a mixture of uh, software development uh, and leading a team, and then pitching to venture capitalists or you know angel investors and things like that. So it was um, a pretty unique experience. It was an extremely cool place to be in college, and it really opened me up to that startup world. Did you are you out of the business? Did you did he buy you out? Are you on the board? Are you an equity partner still? Are you just an inactive equity partner? What does that look like now? Yeah, I basically ended up leaving at the end of college. Um, based stepping in first time into any startup. Didn't know what to ask for going in. And I ended up uh, wanting to pour in uh, pour in a lot of time and effort and energy, more than I originally thought I would. And um, then I realized... So I you know, made the ask to, to step up to, let's be 50-50 partners on this. And that wasn't something you wanted to do. So uh, we ended up just taking it different ways because I was looking for something where I could be, you know, pour in all my time and energy and be a 50-50 partner on <laughs> Makes sense. Wow. That's uh, again, uh, your wisdom blows me away, to be honest with you. Just you have this, they have this mind for it, entrepreneurial mind. It's incredible to me uh, for anybody, but especially at 25, not to keep pushing that, but damn, man. <laughs> I just, I look back at where I was at 25. I think I was in a bar somewhere. Like, I, I you know, <laughs> who knows? So to see what you're doing is inspiring. Take us forward to real estate. So you started syndicating multifamily. Was that the first dip into real estate where you're just syndicating multifamily right out of the jump? So uh, I actually started buying some smaller, like triplexes and quadplexes out in the Midwest. Uh, when I first started working at Google, I had um, I had money coming in for the first time that felt real. You know, it felt like this is a real amount of money. It's non negligible amount, and um, I have to do something with this. And so at first, I just kept funneling you know X percent of it into stocks and equities and things like that. And I would end up at the bar <laughs> on a you know a weeknight or a weekend or whatever, and I would say, Do I want to buy this drink or? Do I want to put this aside and put it into stocks and equity? And I, I knew I wanted to start investing and putting this money somewhere more useful. But the honest answer was, I'd rather buy this drink. And, uh, you know, not like a cracking under, you know, an absence of willpower, but just to be completely honest, I, I think I would get more value out of this drink. And um, so I, I realized I like I needed a investment vehicle that was more exciting to me than stocks, which were extremely intangible. And so I went after kind of looking for an investment vehicle that was more exciting than that. And um, started looking into real estate, and I think uh, listening to bigger pockets and things like that. And I got enough excitement behind that that I started to uh, finally be able to store my money away and put it into real estate. So I started buying some triplexes and quadplexes out in the Midwest with one partner. Um, but it was kind of this buy and then save six months of saving, and then you have enough for down payment. Buy another one, save, um, and it wasn't going very fast. So there was over the course of the next year or so, um, I kind of had a growing. Uh, frustration with the speed of that um, uh, entry wow. point into real yeah, estate. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Makes sense. Where were you buying in the Midwest? Uh, we were buying out in Cincinnati, in Ohio. Gotcha. Great city. Are you still own those properties or no? Have you sold those? Uh, ended up selling them uh, a couple years later. And they, yeah. they worked out pretty well. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great market. I had no idea. I actually uh, went down there, met one of the guys down there, a couple of guys down there, Rolando, Bob Castellini. And uh, my wife and I walked around like, man, I had no idea Cincinnati was such a gem. It's only a few hours from me, but what a city. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, I've, I've never actually been there. <laughs> Still, <laughs> Neither had so, I yeah, until it, then. So, But it, look, it does look cool. I've done a lot of you know research on Street View and, uh, and otherwise. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. It's it's a, it's a kind of like a, it's got a, a metropolitan feel to it. Um, yeah. Is that the right word? Metropolitan, whatever. Not metropolitan. What the heck's the word? Uh, <laughs> I'll think of it later. Um, cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan? Whatever. Who knows? Honest, Doesn't they all confuse me. All those yeah, words. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Something Allerton. Who knows? Um, all right. So, so you you buy these properties. Where does syndication come in? And talk to me about that whole business. Like, what multifamily? Where? Wh- you know, what size? Who's the partner? Sure. Real partnership team look like? Give me kind of an idea of that multifamily business. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so like I said we were buying these triplexes and quadplexes. It was going on very slow, and it was kind of a um, you know, I want to emphasize this part. This is a gradual transition. A lot of like. Um, building desire, building belief um, that eventually landed in syndication. It was not a flick of a, you know, a switch sure. or anything that happened. So it was over the course of a year, I started doing a mastermind group with the partner I was buying real estate in Cincinnati with and one other who is um, Abe, who's uh, my business partner now. And um, so we started doing a mastermind and we all kind of concluded on the same goal of, you know, we want out of this nine to five world and we want you know, to do that through, you know, financial you know, some fin- horizontal income and financial independence. And so with that, we didn't know what to do, <laughs> um, how to accelerate this and how to go faster. Um, but at least the desire was building because every week we would sit there and talk about it. And so we wanted it more and more and more. And we were kind of upping the cost of not doing anything about it in our heads. And so eventually what we found is there were other investors out there that, you know, we would talk to people about real estate every once in a while, would come up in conversation, maybe it was at a bar, maybe it was at, you know, uh, meeting someone for coffee and, when talking to real estate investors that were a lot further along or had a lot more money, they were all saying, I'm just, you know, I'm looking for, I'm looking for multifamily if you can find them in any of these markets. And we kept hearing that. And there was actually a, um, if there was one moment where everything kind of shifted for us, it was, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was living, I immediately went to, um, uh, Hawaii and then to Tahoe, uh, to just, you know, get out into nature. And I was listening to a podcast, um, a bigger pockets podcast from another GoBundance member, uh, Will Brown, who's now oh, yeah. my roommate, actually. <laughs> and um his podcast on bigger pockets he talked about deal flow is this basically the bottleneck of all real estate at least at the time and there's plenty of capital out there but if you ask people again and again and again you'll notice a trend that everyone's missing deals and if you can control the deal flow that that's the one bottleneck then you can kind of everything else will come around or come in around you which is the lenders contractors um everything else so for him, you know, someone starting who's young and didn't have money, like control the deal flow. That's the, that's the hot, the hottest commodity in uh, the real estate industry. And so we kind of already believed, you know, and seen that trend and believed a little bit, but hearing someone else say it and validate that idea. So that gave us the belief that, okay, we should pour fully into that and we should double down or bet on that thesis statement. And so, um, we ended up looking at multifamily as the asset class that we knew, um, to do that. Let's go find larger multifamily that we can. Um, then bring in investors or wholesale to investors um, in order to uh, take down bigger deals and kind of move the needle faster. So we ended up uh, still, you know, kind of kicking the tire for a couple of months, <laughs> even even after that. And this is why, you know, I don't want to say it happened all of a sudden, but um, eventually, kind of the frustration built high enough. We ended up moving out to Reno, Nevada, which is where we kept hearing 
you know, the same investors. I, you know, I live in the Bay Area, you know, lived in the Bay Area. So a lot of investors are moving their money from the Bay Area to Reno. We said, we keep hearing Reno. Let's just move to Reno. We know no one there. All the distractions will disappear. All the desire to go to a bar or go, you know, anything else. Um, and we will just work on real estate. And so we moved out to Reno, Nevada. Um, for the first month, we slept on like, you know, slept on air mattresses in a one bedroom apartment out there. And we just focused on deal flow. How do we generate deal flow? And, um, what we ended up, you know, coming to building was, um, we ended up writing some software to message, uh, message sellers or real estate sellers kind of at scale. And so we got to Reno within three days, we could message every property owner in Reno. Um, and we did that in the multifamily space, which is what we were focused on. And then we would follow up with them and follow up with them. And so, um, we ended up generating this pretty, uh, nice off market, you know, kind of deals list. And, um, then using that to go to brokers and provide, you know, provide them value and say, Hey, we have deals. We'd like to bring you on as a broker and then, um, kind of banking on them sending us deals in the future. And so, yes, we would give up a little bit of these deals on the entry point. Um, but we would, you know, Why? see future Why? return. Yeah. Why would you give that up? Why would you not just go after the seller and, and, and take the deal down? Why would you go with a broker? Uh, what we found is, you know, brokers have different methods of, of getting, getting to deals. Um, mm-hmm. and I think so they, you know, they're doing banking off relationships they might have for five or 10 years and kind of word of mouth and things like that. Ours is a volume based, um, text approach. So it's a totally different strategy. So the deals that we were bringing to the table are deals that nobody had ever, you know, most of these brokers had never seen before. Whereas the broker network kind of, a lot of them have seen, you know, a lot of these deals get passed around within the broker network. And so what we decided is honestly, the two or 3% you would pay a broker, that commission is very worth it. Um, most of the time, if, if that's the price of finding a really good off market deal, that's generally going to be worth it at the quality of deal that we were finding. So let's bring brokers on. Let's say, Hey, look on this one. I've already found the deal. I already, you know, created that value. Um, but I'm going to bring you on anyway and pay you for it. And what ended up happening is, uh, we could get in front of a broker that we would have no business being in front of given our track record and age and other things like that. And we could jump to the very top of their buyers list. Um, by bringing them a deal and we would have to pay the cost of that is 2% of the deal that we would have, you know, been able to keep. So we would bring, you know, we'd show up with a list of five, 10, you know, off market deals and we'd say, Hey, I need help with these. Um, do you want to broker these on our behalf? And they would say, yeah, absolutely. And we would close, you know, one or two of them. And then, you know, a month later, they'd be like, Hey, I got this really good off market deal. Do you want to take a look at it? And we would do that one, you know, do that one with them. And those would just keep coming in. So we found that the trade-off was just worth worth it because of um, you're investing in a future, you know, a future relationship that will pay itself back. So I'm um, thinking, man. Wow. Okay. That makes sense. So all right, let let me I want to dissect this if you're cool with it. I, I want to kind of Yeah, yeah. Sorry, place. I was going all over the place. So. No, no, I asked you to go all over the place. I said, Hey, uh, why the broker and all that stuff? I I took you there. I took you on the tangent. Uh, no, you've been very clear on this. And and for me, I'm trying to get into like I love. I love text. I love SMS. I just think, you know, open rates are way higher. If you're doing any kind of marketing, uh, we're mm-hmm. talking about that. Um, you know, Mark Henteman. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, Mark and well. I are part of quant- part of the quantum team, right? Actually heading out after this interview to Denver to look at a property we have under contract out there. Right. And I've been talking to him about on our, our marketing efforts when my role in that company is now. And again, met him at GoBundance. It was a plug for GoBundance, right? Met Mark at GoBundance, became a general partner with him. Um, but we, we, you know, is, is text message marketing or text message, at least not marketing in the way you're marketing and finding deals. Cause he's got a, I mean, he, he's at this point where his broker network is robust. Like he's already at that top of that list. Right. But right. in marketing quantum and marketing, what we're doing using like text as the, as the medium, not just email, right? Like email, what a 20% open rates, maybe text is right. still, I think 90 plus 95, 96% open rates. Um, so I get why text. 
First question that comes to mind is how do you get the list of how do you you wrote software? So I'm sure there's a lot of granularity to this, but like, are you using similar t- uh, a technology to like a Reonomy, that sort of thing to get at the owner and then their phone number and then text that phone number? How do you get that? Yeah, great question. So we actually do use Reonomy to pull the initial list. So that's just a list of addresses and oh, properties. Actually, um, Reonomy. That's just <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's that's where we start. Um, you can use, Re- I mean, Reonomy does all of it. You can pull phone numbers from Reonomy if you pay Reonomy. Uh, I don't find the phone number quality to be very high. So what we did early on is we A-B tested. We kind of broke this up into different segments. Mm-hmm. So you have the original property list. Then there's a translation from entity names into owner names. And then there's a translation from that to phone numbers. And then there's from phone numbers, there's, you know, you send text messages and there's ones with higher and lower conversion rates. So you know, uh, I, I was working at Google. My partners were at PayPal and Amazon. And so we're all from this tech world. And so we, AB, you know, in the tech world, you A-B test. That's what you do. And so we took all of these segments and we said, okay, let's put a thousand, you know, leads through this part of the the uh, pipeline and let's see what comes out the other end and let's, you know, back check against what's correct. So we A-B tested along each side, so or along each segment. And you find that there are better and there are worse services at each part of the chain. So if you use Reonomy for the whole thing, you can. It's easiest. Um, your data quality will be lower um, than I. Then you can do it if you kind of piece together the best um, best service at each segment of the chain. Interesting. Okay, and that's what your technology does. You you figured out the the you know by A B testing and kind of testing again and testing again. You figured out the the funnel, if you will. It's, you know, my my yeah. speak for it, right? From going from Reonomy and then tapering it down to the optimal list. Like this is the highest quality list we can text. Okay. Exactly. So originally we built that kind of out ourselves because we didn't realize it existed and we didn't have the money to pay for it, even if it, we knew it existed. Um, uh, but now then, you know, fast forward a year and a half or so and we realized, oh, all these softwares exist out there. We could just pay for them, buy them. And then we wouldn't be sitting here like, our code broke, we need to fix it <laughs> so that we can continue marketing, um, which is efficient. not yeah. a good process. Yeah. Okay. So you're texting owner. So you, you figured out the optimal list. And I'm actually kind of curious. So you, when you, and maybe it's no different, when you text owners, then now, what do you send them? Like, what do they get? Is it just like, hey, I'm Ryan, you don't know me, but I want your property. Like, what is it? Is it, is there, did you test different scripts? Is there a, curious how you actually, what you actually say to them? We tested a lot of scripts and what we landed on um, is, hi, my name's Ryan. I'm interested in this property. Is there a price you'd sell? Is there a price you'd let it go for? That's Simple. It. That's it. Simple. And what's yeah. open rate, I'm assuming is in the 90s? It's very high. Yeah, it's, it's probably in the 90s. And what's and, um, the risk? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm all excited. I'm, I want to get all these. Li- <laughs> go ahead. I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah, what we found is um usually the first text, the wave. So we, I've done this two different ways. Uh, we've done this in Reno where we texted and followed up and followed up and followed up because we were there for about a year. And so uh, or a year and a half. So there was a lot of follow ups. And then after that, we realized, why are we limiting this to Reno? Let's go broader. And so then we've done this kind of more nationwide, in which case we just do a first pass and we don't do a follow-up after that. So when we do the follow-ups, what we find is the first message, if we just come in and say, hey, my name's Ryan, I'm you know interested in this property. Is there a price you'd let it go for? The response rate with a price is around 10%. Um, but you can follow up and you get about 10% more. Uh, and slowly that starts to diminish. So it might be 10% the first time, 10% the next time, then it's nine and eight and it trails off. But at the end of the day, you might get a response from 50 to 60% of the the people you message on what their price is. Now, some of those prices are absurd and outrageous, or you know, they they're assuming you've already done all the work, <laughs> so there's no reason to buy it. Um, but um, a lot of them are, you know, quite good. So that's uh, probably the 
the rates. Um, but now, when, since we've kind of opened it up and we're looking more nationwide, we generally just do the first pass um, and don't deal with the kind of diminishing returns of following up and whatnot. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, wow. All right. How many how many operators are doing this technology out there? So this is not like, you know, completely unique at this point. Like you've, you've built it, but there's other people that have built it and scaled a business out of it. You're a subscriber to those businesses now. Is this, yep. a, is this a fairly common tactic amongst operators right now or no? Depends. Um, single family home, wholesaling. Yeah, it's, it's very common. Uh, yeah, it's done good. a lot uh, in, you know, buying $10 million commercial real estate. It's, I haven't heard of anybody else doing it. <laughs> so okay. um, it depends on where you're at and what you're looking to buy. Yeah. All right. So like, uh, let's get into this part of it then. So you, you text a hundred people. I, I don't know. I don't know how big the list is, but you go into a market. So I'm assuming like you're in Reno, if you're in Reno, okay. Every, every property, every multifamily property in Reno, maybe there's a filter to that. I want to text all of them. What's your price, right? So you text I, I got a thousand people. What's your price, right. right? You said six, 600 of those might respond with a price, right? Okay. At the end How, of the day, that's after many phones. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Not like text out, text in. Hey, I got 600 leads. Cool. We're, we're ready to go. Um, right. How do you vet and determine that a price is ridiculous versus a price being reasonable? Like how, I mean, I'm just one of the work once 600 texts come in or however many it is, like, how do you get that to a place where you can determine not, not worth it? Is that systematized yeah. or is that one-to-one-to-one-to-one? Good question. Yeah. So I would say it's, it's, kind of uh, evolved over the time that we've been doing this. So in the multifamily space, uh, we knew Reno well enough where you didn't need to tell me anything about your property. You just tell me the price you're willing to sell for. I'll look up the address, find the square footage, the unit counts. I could do the performer rent and get a rough estimate on the rehab. So I don't need to know really the condition or anything else in order to get to an offer. So just your price and that's enough. And that would be a one-off. And we were doing all the texting and we were doing all the analysis at that point. So that's the way like, that wasn't, that's not very scalable. Um, I don't really recommend it in the long run, but sometimes in the short term, it's necessary because you need to become the expert where you can derive formulas and playbooks and things like that and put someone else in that spot or automation or whatever it is. Uh, now we focus on commercial real estate and a large reason for focusing on commercial real estate is that it's, uh, it is both more complex, but also kind of simpler. Um, and what it, what we look for is we are looking to buy vacant buildings for vacant pricing, basically. And then we want to do the work, the value add to place tenants. And so I'm looking at what is the kind of stabilized value of a building based on what's market rents around here and what how, much, how big is this building in terms of square feet. That's, you know, this is the value I can get to. And I just want to buy at a price that's half of that or less. So if I'm buying for a million dollars and I can get to two million after I do the value add, then that's, you know, that's interesting to me and I'll look at it and potentially make an offer. Uh, so our systems, uh, we'll filter out anything um, that doesn't meet that criteria. Now, are you doing this in one market at the beginning? Are you in multiple markets now? Is it just you said national earlier? So are you just anywhere? Yeah, now we'll buy anywhere. Um, I don't really like California. Kind of like that's probably the one state I would try to stay away from. But uh, pretty much everywhere else, um, and we definitely have some preferences. Some heavy preferences towards uh, the southeast. Uh, we really like North Carolina, uh, in Nevada, and okay. then um, otherwise, yeah, generally the southeast area. Give me an idea of how many texts go out. I know it's a you're using a, a service, but how many texts go out a week, a month, a day? I, I don't know what the volume, you know, the best metric for that is, but how many texts go out in a month? Let's say. Yeah, if, if we're running like um, 
uh, full steam ahead. Because some, yeah. sometimes what ends up happening is we get we throttle this down because of uh, you know there's too many escrows or something like that going on at once. Yeah. Um, but if we have you know if we're trying to send as many texts as possible, we will send. Um, we're contacting about six thousand properties in a market usually, um, and we might have five or six of those markets going at once. And so in a week, you know, like the first. You know, first week we enter all those markets, we might send out 30,000 messages from like that. You'll get 15, 20,000 responses from those eventually after multiple after multiple uh, attempts. At if it, we right? were following up, yeah, but yeah. We haven't been following up as much recently. We've just been doing a first pass through markets because playing more breadth, less depth. Okay, uh, so, so 30,000, five markets, 6,000 a piece. How many actual like... Well, let's start at the bottom. How many deals do you do out of that campaign? How many do you actually get under contract? Yeah, get under contract probably around twenty, and how many we do probably around ten. So twenty under contract, ten that actually come to close. How many? How many uh, of those are? How many of those do you make an LOI? Do you put an offer out on? Yeah, we um we don't really we kind of skip the LOI phase a lot of the time. Uh, we've been burned on LOIs before, sure. getting an LOI and shopping around. So generally, um, when we submit an offer, it's the final offer. Uh, other than just kind of some going back and forth on text. Um, so we will submit offers over text, which generally just include price, due diligence, timelines, and um, that's about it, to be honest. Uh, we'll submit that on, you know, probably a couple hundred properties, and um, see where, and then twenty will get in, end up in the an escrow. How do you get these around the broker? Because you bring them to the broker eventually, right? But I'm just thinking brokers right now, I mean, they're, it feels like they're calling everyone, right? It's a hot, hot market. They're trying to find deals everywhere. How are you getting, it's just people that don't want to deal with a broker initially. Like, How are you getting to these deals before that local broker does in whatever market it might be in? Like, How are you, I can't imagine if I'm a broker, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> how did you text a dude and then bring the deal to me when I I'm here, like, how do I not know this guy or how did I not get him first? Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, we found a trend for a lot of the, um, a lot of the deals that we've done is these people have held these properties for a long time. A lot of times they've, they've owned it for, you know, 10, 20 years. Uh, they're not a high transaction or high volume, you know, a player in the market. And so they're a lot of times off radar to a degree. A lot of the time they only own one property. Maybe they own two. Um, so they're not someone who's out there, you know, transacting every year or every couple of years and a broker sees and says, Hey, do you have anything else? There's kind of no entry point for a broker. And so, like, for example, the best deal we've done was a building that was um built. Uh, you know, the the owner that we bought from was the original developer, uh, many, you know, back in the 70s. And then they did a big retrofit uh 20 years ago and placed a huge, you know, multi-billion dollar tenant in there. But they haven't sold this building ever, and it's the only building they own. And it's about 30 minutes out of Raleigh, kind of in a, you know, in a more rural part. And so nope. I don't know where a broker would enter the picture here. You know, I don't know how the broker would ever meet this person or know this person. So there's a demographic you. out there that's kind of not tapped into. Yeah, brokers have to love you. Love you for, for hey, found <laughs> this thing. You want to come in on this? Like, oh, yeah, you're a marketing agent for the broker. That's unbelievable. What value? Either, either love or hate, depending on <laughs> whether we come to them or something. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. So, all right. So, so you, you've got, how, how long have you been doing this? Give me an idea of how many deals you've closed, um, total. Yeah. So we, uh, we started, um, the first deal we purchased was October of 2019. Is that right? 
Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm off. October of 2020. So a year and a half-ish? Yeah, year and a half. Um, so that was the first purchase we made. Um, I think we've purchased about 15. I have another like five in escrow. Um, and uh, we've sold the first four of those and are in contact to sell two more. Did you wholesale them? Or would you say you sold them? They're a year and a half? Like, no. uh, Sorry, we've actually wholesaled um, a couple of times uh, early on. Uh, those are separate. So we've wholesaled three or four buildings. Yeah. Um, but I know I'm talking um, about sold. So the first property we bought was a multifamily building. We bought it October 2020. We did a, you know, we rehabbed the entire thing and then found a buyer off market. So we sold in December of 2020. So we sold it in parallel to the rehab. So we, it was contingent on, you know, we closing yeah. out a rehab basically. Um, if you don't want me asking, uh, what, were the, what were the numbers on that? Would you be willing to share that? Like, what did you buy for? Sure. What did you rehab? What did you sell for? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, we bought for 1.1 million. Uh, we put in 75K into a rehab. Um, didn't need a ton of work uh, structurally or anything. Nothing major needed work, just cosmetics. So we put in about 75K into a rehab. Um, and then we ended up selling for 1.55 um like a couple months later uh then the next we had a it was a group of investors that was so that 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 was our original property we actually came to reno we meant to wholesale property that was the goal because we didn't have any money we figured what can you do when you don't have money you can wholesale Uh, syndication didn't really enter the picture of the mind um yet and we tried to wholesale this property and we failed at wholesaling it uh couldn't find a buyer because i didn't know anyone who wanted to buy uh you know one you know a million dollars of multifamily out in reno the people we wanted or were talking to either wanted to buy three hundred thousand dollars or they wanted to buy ten million. <laughs> and so um uh there was no one for this. So but we had done all the due diligence and we're like, this is a really you know, it's a pretty good property. Like, what if we just raise the funds? And so we um kind of stumbled forward into uh into syndicating on that first one. So you now what what does the standard deal look like? I mean, are these like you mentioned an industrial property? Uh you're well, let's go back to multifamily. When you were just doing multifamily, were these like 10, 15 unit properties, mom and pop owned, like you were describing, or is that the size or were they much bigger? I, I'm, I'm picturing more that like 10, 20 unit uh, mom and pop, like you mentioned. Yeah. 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 I would say um, they started as, uh, they started as mom and pop, about maybe a million to 3 million or something like that. That would be the range. And so um, we would buy at 10 to 20 units and then flip those units. Uh, now we're kind of buying a lot more commercial. So there's a lot of uh, industrials, the main focus, yep. but we're also buying some lab buildings, office, things like that. And so now they're getting into a more institutional size. Uh, we closed a building recently. It was two, like about 200,000 square feet um, wow. industrial building. And so um, they're getting larger and larger, but uh, we like, I mean, in theory, the, the projects that I would like the most is to buy from kind of the mom and pop size and then to graduate the building by placing tenants and renovating and whatnot into the institutional size and then to, to sell there. Wow. Okay. All right. And you're, so you're buying these mom and pop buildings, you're, you're graduating into sort of the, the industrial space. How are you raising capital? I mean, you know, and again, we've mentioned your age, right? You're a young guy, new to the real estate space. I would assume the first deal was probably friends and family, you know, kind of people that you're really, really close to, but like you're doing a lot of deal volume and for, for anybody, whether you're 25 or a 50 year old seasoned syndicator, you're doing a lot of deal volume. So you have to raise a lot of capital. How are you doing that? What is the, is there a system to this or have you just, how have you built a capital raising arm that quickly in a year and a half to do the kind of deal flow that you're doing? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So originally the first one's super hard and now it's really easy. And I would say um, uh, for anyone who's like, uh, looking to looking to raise funds out there, like the, the first time 
uh, five of us, the five guys on our team in a room sitting around a whiteboard that I had um, and writing the name of every single person that I knew who might have $50,000 or more onto a whiteboard. And we would go through and we'd assign names to everyone. Like you have to call this person, you have to call this person, you have to call this person. Uh, I knew the product, you know, like the product that we had was, was pretty solid. And so I, I didn't feel like I was selling something, you know, that uh, was really going to go south on people or anything like that. Um, and the first time we went, we built a, you know, we built a decision tree of, you know, everything that could go wrong on this property and what the worst case scenario is and what all the, the different outcomes. I, I didn't like showing people a performa that kind of has all these assumptions that they don't understand or aren't aware of. So I wanted to walk people through the full decision tree of like, here's what happens if the COVID rent moratorium lasts an extra year. Here's what happens if our contract, you know, our rehab budget goes over by this, you know, by double. Here's what happens if um, the business that we're looking, we're going to master lease the building uh, to one tenant. If they go out of business and we have to pivot to a traditional renting route, like there's just all of these kind of like, here's our business strategy and here's everything that could go wrong. And here's where you would land. You would get your money back in like 4% return. It wouldn't be that glorious, <laughs> um, uh, but you also wouldn't lose your shirt. And so, I was trying to walk people through um, all of this. And so that thoroughness was there early on because I knew that like, you know, I don't have a track record to back it. So I need to back it some other way. Um, and now th that's changed a lot over time. You know, we've done some, some of the investors, they're on their fourth deal with us uh, or fifth deal with us. And so now it's more of a phone call. Hey, I have a deal. It's really good. Do you want to meet and talk about it? And we'll set up a 30 minute Zoom call and I'll walk into the property and they say, this looks good. Let's do it. And they'll put, you know, $500,000 in or whatever, like pretty big check sizes at this point, but it wasn't that way early on, you know, um, people need to test the waters and they need to, they want to do it with smaller amounts and uh, kind of see, they want to test a lot of things about what, how good are you at assessing deals and finding deals and how good are you um, at underwriting? And also when things go south, when things don't go the way that you planned, what will you do as a response? Um, and so I've held it as like a, um, we've tended you know, we will come in asking for decently large sizes of the profit a lot of the time. And that's because we will end up giving away a lot of that profit if needed. So our profit is the buffer on a lot of the deals. And so um, if things go south, we're often it comes out of our side. And I think that's just an aligned. What do you uh, mean? Give me, give me, give me some numbers on that. What do you mean by that? Uh, is it from a standpoint of like the fees you're taking or the, the, your, what your promote is the, the splits? Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, so we, we don't do fees. Um, and we don't do promote, we don't do equity. Um, or sorry, we do, we do, I guess we do a promote. I guess that would be, um, more of a profit splitting. We don't do equity. Uh, basically the way I view it is, um, as a, you know, as the sponsor of a deal, uh, I don't want any of the value for me locked in when I close. Um, I want all of the value to be earned after I stabilize the property. And I think that's an aligned incentive. I think there's a, there's a lot of structures out there that are equity based or fee based. Where um you know the the sponsor may have gotten ninety percent of the value that they're going to get the day they close, sure. um and so I, I like to just align it and I also we tried to keep it as simple as possible and I found a lot of the fees just made things uh, complex and a lot of you know waterfall structures equity structures and things like this make things very complicated so generally the way we came in is we're going to um, get you back all of your money first and then after that we're going to split profits fifty fifty or you know, whatever the, whatever the split would be. Um, and so that said on various deals, like when things, you know, I, I communicated, you know, here's the way the structure is going to work or the deal is going to work. And then last second we had to pivot to a different loan, um, that with higher fees, uh, that's going to come out of my, you know, like I'm going to eat that cost. And yeah. so, um, 
that's going to come out of my profit. So um, anyway, that, that's generally the way I like to run deals. I think it makes it straightforward and you know, a confused mind says no. So I wanted to keep it very simple and, and, and easy, uh, but also wanted to make sure that incentives are aligned along the whole way where you know I got to do the best thing for the project because otherwise I get nothing out of it. <laughs> That makes sense. No, I like that. So you're essentially saying, hey, look, you get 70-30 splits, all that. That's kind of the standard that you hear a lot in the syndication world. You're saying you're going to get 50 because anything that doesn't come, anything that that comes out of whatever, anything that goes wrong, it's coming out of my 50. So yeah, I might be asking for more up front, but if it all goes great, you're going to do well because I'm not going to have to take anything out of my side, but you're going to get your 50. You don't have to worry about, you know, I guess you'll get your 70, but you don't have to worry about a diluted 70 because I'm going to, I'm going to take whatever losses there are essentially out of my side or any, any things that happen yeah, along the way. Right. And a lot of that's like, we don't do that contractually. Um, meaning like I don't stay in there, like I'm obligated to take on all the losses. Uh, that's yeah. just something we've done out of, done out of habit. Whenever anything does go south, we'll yeah, come sure. back and say, Hey, this thing went south. We're taking that on our side. Good spot. And, um, sure. Yeah. No, yeah. that makes sense. Wow, man. Interesting. So you've scaled fast. You're raising capital fast. You're doing a bunch of things really, really, I mean, What's next? Like, what is the next level for you? Where do you take this? Yeah. So I'm right now what we're working on is uh, we've kind of got all these pieces that work They're Um, they were born out of a, um, you know, fast paced startup kind of environment. And so they're very chaotic and they're not, you know, the systems aren't amazing or great or dialed in extremely well. So it works very well, but it takes a lot of your time and your energy and your effort to kind of keep the engine going. So right now what I'm working on is building those systems and that can be automation or it could be um, systems that I'll hire people into uh, so that this thing can just work in the background more or less um, a lot of the time. So I'm trying to reduce the amount of effort and, you know, that you put on a daily basis to make all of this happen. I'd like to get to the point where it's just uh, phone calls, talking strategy. And that's all, you know, that's, that's my involvement in here and no more sending the same docs to lenders, you know, time and time again, or sending, you know, uh, scheduling inspections and all this stuff. So um, I'm working on those systems right now and trying to um, reduce my time and energy that I've put into this. And uh, once that's done, then um, I'm actually probably going to look into a next, like a next venture. Uh, and it might be real estate related. It might not be, but um, I'll be looking towards, yeah, some new business. I like it. I like it. Are you, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, are you able or willing to share what technology do you use for your texting platform? Yeah. Yeah. Happy to share. Uh, we use, I use Reonomy to grab the original lists. Um, we use, uh, for skip, well, for, uh, getting owner names and things like that, you just have to go on to right, you know, county websites that are out there, or usually actually state, like secretary of state websites and stuff. Um, then for skip tracing, we'll use, uh, Elliot Smith. He's actually a GoBro. Um, his service, when we did AV testing, his service was the best. Um, you can also use, skip genie is our kind of backup whenever he can't, uh, whenever they can't find, um, certain numbers. And then, um, We'll use Lead Sherpa uh, for messaging, SMS messaging, but I really think you can use any number of messaging services out there and testing. You know, AB, I didn't find a huge difference between all these services. And then um, we'll use Podio for our CRM. And that's primarily just because it integrates with um, Lead Sherpa so that you can easily push leads to the CRM. Uh, if anything else offered that service, it'd probably be equally valid CRM. Makes sense. Wow. So, all right, so quite, the, quite a few steps. I'm curious, what's your all in cost? monthly subscription fees on all because Rihanna ain't cheap. I don't know what uh, what Elliot's program is, but like what do you what do you spend a month on on marketing? Yeah, you can do this in any number of so you can kind of dial up or down the marketing costs and the other end of the spectrum is effort. And so originally we coded it all up and our marketing costs were like a thousand dollars for the year. And we messaged all on Reno and like time and time again you know, went through. Yeah. So like 
that was like, you know, that's one end of the spectrum. The other side is you put all the dollars in, you get a Reonomy subscription, you know, you have lead Sherpa accounts, uh, yeah, and all these other, all the other services I mentioned. That might be, um, you can probably go into a market for uh, $5,000 in a market, like an MSA for $5,000, just something like Raleigh Durham or something like that. Um, and then uh, there's, you know, the monthly cost might be a thousand a month or something. So it's not, it's not free. And that's why early on we built it ourselves because we were taking a big bet that this would even work. Yeah. Then once we proved that, okay, Good messaging bet. people works, uh, let's put money into it and let's scale this up. And so uh, now that we're sure that it works, we're willing to put them in the end. I love it. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about GoBundance. Uh, it's kind of a two part, like why GoBundance and what has been the, 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 uh, you know, if anything, what's been the benefit of being a member for you? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I actually originally joined GoBundance on a recommendation of Will. I mentioned him earlier, Will Brown. And, um, when I met him for the first time, actually, no, I hadn't met him for the first time yet. Uh, I took a couple after that, I listened to that podcast. I called him and I said, Hey, I really like you. I have to say, I asked him some questions. He gave us some advice. That's what landed us in Reno, you know, and started, you know, kind of this more action oriented, um, endeavor. And so I called him about a year later and said, Hey, I want to thank you for, uh, you know, the advice you gave us so that this is where we landed and it worked out. It worked out really well. He said, that's awesome, man. You, you need to come down to LA. We got to meet and you got to join this group, Go Abundance. I think you'll love it. So, um, that was, uh, how I kind of got introduced to the group, ended up joining and, um, I was really looking for, you know, I'm, I'm really looking for even currently kind of a reintegration to a normal society a little bit um, because I went, you know, when the pandemic started, uh, it happened to be uh, we were doing a mastermind retreat the weekend that all of the emails went out to say to work remote. And what we decided was or the question we went to answer, we uh, kind of extended that retreat to a, a, like a week out in Hawaii. And we were trying to answer one question, which was what can we do this year that will be more effective than it would be on a normal year? Because the world's about to kind of change here. And we realized we can put our head down and work really hard. And so we moved out to Reno to, you know, eliminate all these distractions and whatnot. And so, you know, as of, you know, throughout the pandemic, I was working really hard, but I was also, you know, to a degree isolating myself, you know, with a, with a group of friends that we were working on this, this project turned company, but uh, it was fairly isolated. And so go abundance, you know, it's been a huge way for me to reintegrate back into, um, you know, the multi-dimensionality of life. It's not all about working, you know, working as hard as you possibly can all the time. And um, so there's this very balanced, you know, focus on um, uh, kind of a, a better balance of things in life. And so that's been really, um, really helpful for me to re like readjust and refigure out what I'm missing, you know, what, what I was not focusing on for the last year. Yeah, so to answer your second question, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, to answer your second question of what I've gotten the most out of Inglebundance, um, there's, I used to be a person of extremely high gratitude in college. And so, um, I, I, you know, I remember a lot of times walking through campus or, you know, going on hikes and just kind of like just listening to music and tears coming down my face of just gratitude of, you know, like I'm so lucky to be here. And, uh, I was, I like that to be a part of a key part of my identity. And I remember joining Inglebundance and filling out the one sheet for the first time the first week and filling out the life happiness index. And I, the last box on there is the gratitude thermometer and filling it out. I'm like, I have to put like, you know, I have to put a five here. Uh, and it was kind of a uh, conscious slap in the face of having to realize and state out loud where you're at on something that, you know, once and still you, you want to mean so much to you, which is gratitude. 
And so um, it really helped me like get that back in check, just the acknowledgement that um, that wasn't where it wanted to be. And it was, just, you know, everything was work, work, work and focus. And a lot of times you lose yourself in that pushing really hard towards a goal. And there's excitement and adrenaline and other, you know, other good feelings in there. But gratitude is a unique feeling of, uh, you know, I think of um, appreciating what you have. And uh, that had really slipped a lot. So go abundance, I think if it's the one thing that helped me the most, I would say it's just, uh, you know, making me think about that. Amazing. Amazing, man. Well, I, I'm, like I said, blown away by all of this. I can think of about 20 people I need to send this episode to before it ever airs because the, 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 <laughs> what you just laid out here is unbelievable. And I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to kind of jump over the, the one sheet stuff and go right to the, the final question, which is out of the abundance card game, which is this, what's the most you have ever spent on a gift for someone? <laughs> the most I've ever spent on a gift. Um, to be honest, uh, that's a hard question for me to answer. I, I guess probably uh, in the realm of hundreds if we're talking monetary value. But sure. um, what I end up, I'm not, I'm not sure that's the right way to measure gifts. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> because, whatever. Um, I think, yeah, because I think what ends up happening um, is as you know, as we become more, as we are able to climb up, kind of you know, in a monetary perspective or build more horizontal income there's other resources that end up becoming the constrained ones. And so I've been trying to get myself to focus on this more and more recently is, you know, my time and my energy, I, I hold very, you know, hold very valuable and, uh, and very dear. And so um, I've been finding it harder and harder to give my time and my energy as gifts uh, where I used to, you know, used to give those things a lot more. And so, um, uh, yeah, there's, I think the gifts that stick the strongest in my mind are actually not really ones that I spent, you know, spent a lot of money on. But that I uh, went out of my way and spent, you know, days sometimes building uh, for other people, uh, building something that you know would mean a lot to them, where they had put a lot of meaning behind. And um, yeah, I, I'd like to, I'd like to do a lot more of that. Um, and uh, it, it's a hard thing that I've been, you know, uh, time has become more scarce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right, exactly. As you're building, and that's why you want to systematize your business a bit more. I completely get that, right? So you're not uh, you're not yeah. grinding through it. So, wow, man, this was unbelievable. So it's just chock full of information, and I'm so glad Jake connected us. Like I said, I, we've been at a couple of events together, just haven't crossed paths, I guess. But uh, where should people learn more about you, your company, follow you, whatever you want to want to lay out there for them to find you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you want to see the projects we've done, uh, westegrealestate.com. Uh, that's West Egg Real Estate. Uh, West Egg and then, um, Is that what? Exactly. Yeah. Got it. EGG. Um, that's where you can find all the projects we've done. Um, you can reach out to me. I'm pretty much only on Facebook. I don't have a lot of social media um, uh, or over email, just at like Ryan at West Egg uh, Real Estate.com. And um, I'm happy to take, yeah, if anyone's, if anyone's at the part of the journey where they're willing to work really, really hard and they just need that little kick of belief into how to do it. Um, I think that's where I can probably be the most helpful. So I'm happy to help anyone who wants to, who's in that position. Amazing. Appreciate you being on here, brother. Thanks for, uh, thanks for dealing with all of my questions. I feel like I peppered you through this thing, but so fascinating. It was very interesting what you're doing. So I appreciate you being here and I hope to see you at the next one. Awesome. It was great meeting you, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. Well, 
Well, that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis. Be sure to go over and check out GoBundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that $1 to $5 million range, or our champion division at $5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast. And you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon. 